Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit CARON.org slash lost. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn 2% cash rewards on what you want, like season tickets to watch your favorite team, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like paying for parking. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash. Hey everybody, quit messing around. It's time to get down with the boys in town. That's right, it's the wizard and the bruiser, and I'm here with you. I'm your beatboxing, crazy hip-hop styling wizard, Holden McNeely. And I am your refined classical wizard, Jake, or the bruiser. I forget. (laughs) I live my life in an opium haze. I see everybody's trying to come at me like, oh, he does drugs just because he raps. When it's the bruiser over here in the corner acting all fancy, he's chasing that fucking dragon. Would you like a huff of this rag? Yeah, sure, I would like a damn huff of the rag, all right? You know that's what I need to get through these damn shows. <laughs> Splendid. <laughs> Today, we are doing a show that has nothing to do with anything we just talked about. I mean, the Hellfire Club. <laughs> I guess uh, that works. The 1960s, the counterculture, <laughs> San Francisco. I mean, everything relates back to the X-Men at the some legacy point, right? Virus. It's the X-Men, everybody, and and we're doing a two-parter on this. I'm calling it ahead of time. This episode will be specifically covering the comics, so please don't send us those many emails you like to send going, um, 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 what about the movies? What about the animated show? Yeah, I know, okay? I can, I'll sing the song next week, all right? We'll, we'll do everything next week for that. You know that thing in the X-Men comics and movies and television shows where Professor X or one of the many other telepathic characters uh-huh. try and like read someone's mind, but then it's like shit gets too heavy for them and they're like, ah, I yeah. can't, it's, there's too much, my, my ah. that's how I feel trying to encapsulate over 50 years of the most bullshit, convoluted, (laughs) complicated, retconned, sliced, diced, rehashed, rebooted continuity Uh I have ever laid my eyes upon. Uh, I would rather do a book- Spider-Man? This is a million times worse than (laughs) Spider-Man. I would rather do an episode on the romance of the three kingdoms. I would rather do an episode about fucking quantum physics. That would be easier to wrap my head around. But there's a guy involved named Dave Cockrum. That doesn't fucking spin your dials. Oh, Dave Cockrum's fine. He's mm-hmm. cool. He's, I just think like, he's the, a great last name. He's a great last name. <laughs> I'm talking about uh, is Jean Grey like a clone or a demon? <laughs> I there's uh, I, I read about. There's just like a. Do you know about there's there's an entire group of clone X Men that are just hanging around in the brood space. Yeah, the the brood is such a funny uh, man. There's so many funny like. Oh, so, hilarious. So badass, like, names and words. I remember the brood being thrown around. Hellfire Club, you already mentioned. There's a lot of weird, like, wait, what is this reality Dear, we're in? We're going to have to talk about fucking Mojo World, and we only have an hour, Holton. And Martin Luther King. All of them. Everything's <laughs> rolled up into this fucking it's business too here. Much. Well, let's try to get down to it right here, right now. Of course, it always starts with Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. Which one of them fucking made this one, do you think? Uh, Kirby again, probably? Uh, I feel like this is because uh, Stan Lee had kind of a social justice agenda that he would uh, always yes. try and focus on. He tried to make comics a progressive voice. Um, he uh, the The 1960s was such a disruptive and 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 revolutionary time in american history i'm just trying to set the scene you know of all the naked people in the park and everything i mean it's it's 
everything from feminism to racial equality to the Vietnam War, it all tied together into this time of drastic change. And for some reason, the only way that Stanley and Jack Kirby could talk about it through the lens of the Comics Code Authority was, what if these five white teenagers uh, dressed in spandex... Um, <laughs> We're, you know, punching Holocaust survivors. There you go. That's all you need. It's not the most elegant analogy, (laughs) but it's a very adaptable analogy. They they first appeared in X-Men number one in September 1963 on the heels of creating Spider-Man, Thor, the Hulk, Iron Man, and the Fantastic Four. All of those already being big hits. And they wanted to create, or it seemed like Stanley and Jack Kirby wanted to create a group of of uh, people with superpowers, but didn't want to have to explain how they got their powers. So that was kind of one of the main imp- impetuses for the impetuses. Either way, Stanley said, "I couldn't have everybody bitten by a radioactive spider exposed to a gamma ray explosion." And I took the cowardly way out. I said to myself, "Why don't I just say they're mutants? They were born that way." And then, of course. Years later, Lady Gaga would go on to use that quote as the titular name for her album. Isn't that amazing? Uh, I mean, uh, there was also uh, there was another book, um, Doom Patrol, that people kind of point to as kind of a precursor to the X-Men with a wheelchair-bound mentor oh. assembling a team of, like, otherwise freakish uh, characters. Interesting. But, uh, you know, was Doom Patrol Marvel? Uh, Doom Patrol is owned by DC. I don't oh. know what the exact origin. I'm just throwing that out there because someone will mention it. But um, uh, if you have you read these early Stanley Jack Kirby X Men comics? No, I have not. I mean, the funny thing is that I didn't even realize, even though that's now worth a shit ass load of money, they weren't very popular in their time. I mean, is that not correct? I mean, they they didn't do so hot at first. Uh, throughout the '60s, it kind of uh, the X Men title kind of piddled along, to for lack of a better word. Uh, for one thing, uh, these are supposed to be like swinging teenager characters. Like ah. that was like a big part of the appeal that these are the teens. And I don't know. Have you ever looked at Jack Kirby? He is not a swinging. <laughs> I don't think I think he was born with hairy forearms. And I mean, their costumes, everything about them, they look kind of goofy in those earlier uh uh, versions, I feel like. I mean, they definitely stand out. Like, uh, you know, a lot of uh, heroes at the time were doing a lot of reds and blues and mm. kind of st- and uh, stuff like that. But the X-Men had these like st- like straight lines and like dark blacks and bright yellows that really made them like, it felt like they were like kind of a, a, a hazard, squ- a hazmat squad more than anything else. Uh, the all that you know when they're out of character they're all wearing these like pinstripe and plaid suits barely any of the characters are like really well defined like uh bobby drake Iceman is like this fluffy snowman guy who's just like goofing around the beast is not like the cool beast we know he's just this giant gorilla palooka guy um they really uh Flesh out the relationship between Scott Summers or Slim Summers, as early drafts uh, apparently were, uh-huh. and Jean Grey, who was the one girl on the team. And literally every character in every issue had to be like, yowza, wowza, that is one hot tamale. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they were initially pitched as the mutants, but that was rejected by editor Martin Goodman, who said the readers wouldn't know what the hell was going on with that. Professor Xavier in X-Men number one gives them their name. Mutants possess an extra power, one which ordinary humans do not. That is why I call my students X-Men for extra power. Oh, God. Yeah, that's why That's why they're called that. Did you ever know that? The OG team, Cyclops, Marvel Girl, Beast, Angel, and Iceman. Can we talk about them for a second? Marvel Girl, what does she do? Uh, she has telekinetic abilities, which is to move objects with her mind, and then they okay. give her like uh, some telepathic abilities as well. So Marvel Girl is Jean Grey. Yeah. Oh, okay, gotcha. And um, and it, okay, so the fact is that when they first introduce her, she doesn't have uh, telepathic powers, and then they like reintro- they give it to her later. Mm. It's that little inconsistency that like for later comic book writers becomes a massive arc like you know decades later about how she was traumatized as a kid and like professor x like shut down her powers when she was young and all, all the like every 
There's so much continuity with so many gaps and cracks in it that the, any bit of it can be like retconned and right. more story can be smushed into this. Frame. I mean, and that's the same thing kind of with the movies, too, which we'll get to in episode two. But it feels like they did a lot like like they rebooted it, but they didn't really reboot it. And like, you know, Ian McKellen is still in in there. And, you know, like uh, uh, Patrick Stewart's still in there. But but no, they recast try, other parts. I mean, it, if it's, we try and get into like how old any of these characters are right now, it, you will you'll get a nosebleed. Yeah, it's all it's all over the place. And, and so it really I mean, and all this is like a precursor to what this isn't even really what we knew know as the X-Men. I feel like that doesn't come until just later. But uh, uh, back to the this initial crew, the arch enemies, uh, of course, are Magneto, of course, with uh, Mastermind, Quicksilver, Scarlet Witch, and Toad. Um, and it, it really focused on the comics. It's it focused on good versus evil and later included storylines and themes about prejudice and racism. But uh, at, right now, it's sort of like just, just kind of scratching at the surface with all that stuff. And we get a lot more of that later on. They're just sort of setting the scene a little bit. There's uh, Freak of the Week kind of uh, uh, Monster of the Week, Mutant of the Week, whatever they introduce. Uh, the Juggernaut, who is uh, Professor X's stepbrother, who gains. Oh, he's in there. And that he's early? in there. Super. He's in there early. Uh, he's not a mutant, though. He gets magic powers from discovering a demon temple during ah. the Korean War. Um, <laughs> there's Unus the Untouchable. Of course, Unus. Unus. Yeah. Um, you can't touch him. Yeah. Uh, but the core, the core drama already real early How on. How dare you think that I don't know that Unus, the untouchable, was in the original X-Men. I mean, it's like. He's not in the X-Men. He just fought him a bunch. If somebody came up to me in the street and was just like, oh, you know, I didn't know that Unus was in the original <laughs> X-Men, I'd smack him in their stupid, dumb do you know, faces. Do you know how to spell Unus? Of course. It's, uh, you take an anus. <laughs> you put a U in there. <laughs> It's mm-hmm. uh, the, it's the soap opera aspect. Yes. Uh, uh, Scott Summers is like has trouble controlling his powers. He has to wear glasses or this visor the whole time. I think that's supposed to be like, um, like back in the '60s, you could still wear like a back brace and have headgear. Like just medical equipment were just strapped to teens all the time. And I think that was like Stan Lee's attempt to be like, "Don't worry, it gets better. You'll make out with a hot redhead." Um, Warren Worthington, Angel, was like this handsome, rich guy who was kind of like the, you know, Scott was jealous of him all the time. It was uh, the interconnection and the rivalries between the characters was more important than the actual fighting of bad guys. Yeah. Um, and it did not sell well. Did not sell well. There was a little bit of rejuvenation in 69. Uh, Royal, Roy Thomas and Neil Adams got attached to the project. Roy Thomas, known for creating Conan the Barbarian. Uh, Neil Adams, also uh, the illustrator. Illustrated- the, 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 the comic book, not the... Not the actual novels. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He brought him into the comic. Yeah. Gotcha. I don't really know the history of Conan the Barbarian. I'm some, sure we'll do an episode on that Some old weirdo was like, man, it'd be great if you couldn't wear a shirt and you killed stuff. Yeah, right? Um, and also, oh, and, and he is credited a lot for like popularizing like the sword and sorcery. Yeah. Um, anyways, uh, uh, I feel like we'll do Conan the Barbarian at some point. Also, shout outs to the uh, commentary on the first Conan the Barbarian film. If you can get a hold of that DVD, is one of the funniest things I've ever heard in my life. Arnold Schwarzenegger and the director shoot the shit and essentially literally try to remember things that happened in the movie because it's been like so yeah. long anyways and they were both high as balls so funny dude it's so funny anyways uh neil, neil adams is uh, is an important acquisition he illustrated here. on superman batman and green arrow really popularizing them um, he, def- he basically defined what like good comic book art was for the mm. next like 20 years and was a direct influence on john byrne who was uh, uh one of the most prolific and like well-known X-Men artists of the century. They gave larger roles to uh, the character Havoc and Polaris uh, and really brought them more in. And Polaris later confirmed as Magneto's daughter. Uh, Still though, the sales weren't quite up to snuff after, after a small bump. Uh, For a few years uh, during the sixties, Marvel literally had stopped making new X-Men comics. At issue number 66, (laughs) they were done. And then between issues number 67 and issues 93, I don't even know how this works, but they reprinted old stories for those issues. They would kind of redraw the covers with additional art, 
artwork and just weird. reprint them because very the X- weird because nobody cared. Did anyone else do that on other? Like, was that a thing that was happening? I mean, all the it was time? just about getting stuff up on the you know at the drugstore. It was you know kids are dumb. These are nickel comics. Yeah, whatever. Exactly. I mean, maybe they were kids aren't cents. fucking idiots. By the kids way, kids are literally the dumbest humans. Why are they so fucking stupid? It's like every time I'm around them, I just want to throw up on them. Their brains are mush, and they don't understand what the future is. Fucking can't believe how stupid kids are. Five years later, though, mm-hmm. we get I, what I feel like is the real beginning of X Men. You know, mm-hmm. like when in like Dark Souls doesn't really begin until you get to Anorlando. I think <laughs> X Men doesn't really begin until giant size X Men, written by uh, Lynn Ween mm-hmm. and David Cockrum. Um, uh, oh. Cockrum, I got whiskey dick, right? I bet you heard that one a bunch. They both, they co, wine co created Swamp Thing and Wolverine. And holy shit, Lynn Wine or Ween? I'm sorry, I'm probably butchering his uh, name. Lynn Ween, one of the most Edit- traveled old school comics guys. Editor of Watchmen. Yeah. It's crazy. He bounced between Marvel and DC. He, uh, like ended up as editor in chief of both at certain points in his life. Awesome. Um, he has a million stories. Just go to like any YouTube page and like look up interviews with Len Wein. He's done a million panels, and he's just a fountain of old school comic stories. He's been there for like everything. He uh, uh, he comes up a lot in our Alan Moore episode, obviously, because uh. he was the guy that was like, "Hey, this." crusty Britishman might revolutionize comics. What a fucking boss this guy was. This is a 68-page book published in February 1975. I feel like you do it better at this than I did than I usually do during the uh, research process. Did you get a chance to sit down with any giant si- any of this giant yeah, size X-Men? Um, so what what what's the deal with it? What do you think there's it, it it sparked really I think what popularized X-Men, right? I mean the redesigns of the characters is very apparent. You've got like Colossus in there looking like Colossus as we know him, stuff like that. I mean, well Colossus Okay, so Len Wein, I was uh, listening to an interview with uh Len Wein and Chris Claremont on the way over here and uh, it turns <laughs> out that uh, sweating profusely, just like, I got to get this knowledge in me. So much. <laughs> uh, apparently, Len Wein was given a list of foreign markets where Marvel Comics were doing well, mm. and he li- and he used that list to populate this new cast of X-Men. That's my protein alarm. It Still ha- doing strong. <laughs> um, At this point, it's becoming a regular bit on the show when your protein <laughs> alarm goes off. Do a shot um, of whey. Uh, the idea was that the original X-Men were supposed to be this like diverse kind of cast, but they were all preppy kids. Uh, the one Jew was Magneto and they had to fight him. Um, (laughs) and so they introduced all these new characters, uh, that they all have their own unique stories. Like, uh, Storm was originally supposed to be a character called, uh, Black Cat, not having to do with, um... Uh, the you know the thief character Black Cat from Spider Man more of like Black Panther Black Cat kind of deal, uh, but she ended up getting uh, her character folded in with another character named Tempest who had weather control powers, and she became like the Afro Nubian representative of the of the cast. Uh, mm-hmm. Wolverine was in was created by Len Wein uh, to fight the Hulk back when uh, right. he wanted Len wanted to make sure there was a Canadian presence within comics to like give the Canadian market something to latch on to uh, characters like Nightcrawler and and uh, that's uh, Incredible Hulk number one eighty one by the way in case anybody yeah. was curious to go back and check out the first appearance of Wolverine I love that they just sort of again talking about retconning they just sort of like grabbed him and shoved him into this. Um, uh what yeah and and then just all the all the different places they're from Colossus Soviet Union Nightcrawler West Germany you're gonna say yeah. Nightcrawler and like the deal with Colossus is he was from Russia but he was like a happy farmer that genuinely mm. believed that using his strength to help his his family and his country was a noble cause like he wasn't like it was it was kind of it was a very like open and global uh cast uh held uh so the giant size X Men comic is basically um. Professor X going from uh, location to location, recruiting these X-Men. You get to know the characters. You get to know their powers. And and they do at least explain that the original team was kidnapped, uh, so they've got to try to get him back by getting... by. by, I uh, mean, you could say kidnapped, but that would 
Or they got lost on a mission and Cyclops escaped. That's- yeah. Oh, I mean, spoiler. Uh, yeah. Spoiler alert. Uh, the uh, original team is uh, trapped after having uh, gone onto an, a mysterious mission on an island. And uh, the team that Professor Xavier assembles to rescue them uh, shows up on the island. And Jean Grey is like, Scott Summers, you fucking ding dong. Like he did, you didn't escape. The island let you go. The island is alive, and yes. it needs to feed on mutants. The island is the mutant, and it's Krakoa, um, who comes back very often. This is like a very, you know, uh, a formative myth within the X Men, um, and through some, I forget the exact science of how it happens, but like Storm does some stuff, and like they increase the energy polarity and reverse gravity on the entire island and send it into space. Huh. Um, but these character designs are just way more strong. They're given their own unique costumes. Uh, you know, the yellow and blue black like theme kind of stays, but they're more visually distinctive. Their powers kind of like contrast and complement their personalities. Like, uh, you know, Nightcrawler is this demonic looking form, but he's actually quite friendly mm. and uh, pious and, you know, religious. Uh, uh, Dave Cockrum the, was the illustrator who did these redesigns. He was known for reinventing comic designs. He did the same thing for the Legion of Superheroes. Uh, and um, journalist Tom Spurgeon had this to say about Cockrum's fantastic character redesigns. Cockrum's penciled interiors on those first few issues of the new X-Men were dark and appealingly dramatic. Cockrum gave those first few issues of X-Men a sumptuous late 70s cinema style that separated the book from the rest of Marvel's line and superhero comics in general. Reading those X-Men comics felt like sneaking into a movie starring Sean Connery or Sigourney Weaver, not simply like flipping on the television. Uncanny X-Men really felt new and different almost right away. And Cockrum's art was a tremendous part of that. And I really appreciate how many times he fit the uh, saying his last name into the. Uh, I'm sorry, whose name? Cockrum. Ah, uh, yes. Mr. Dave Cockrum. Uh, this, is a, this is another thing that, like, uh, Neil Adams kind of got the start with this. But um, something for some. Okay, so superhero books are superhero books where, like, you know, they have to be uh, purveyors of justice and, you know, upstanding morals. The X Men books could get a little dirty. They could get a little gritty. They could get a little sexy. I mean, especially later on, um, I do remember being like, whoa, 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 when I'd open it up and you'd have uh, Wolverine with a big fucking honking cigars, not, like not giving a shit. You I know? mean, he is honking cigars and he is honking honkers. Yeah. People are fucking in these books. Oh, yeah. They dance around it, but like, uh, I mean, Storm is a nudist during this initial run of the Uncanny X-Men. <laughs> it's like part of her character. Because, you know, she's open and free like nature. Ah. Like the, like the elements itself. Um, <laughs> Cockrum and John Byrne, like these characters, like I just if you look at this old art, there's just like a bunch of naked people running around half the time. <laughs> I mean, they're like wearing costumes, right. but like they are drawing some like human forms. <laughs> Totally. And then, um, of course, really the 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 man to thank for, I think, all of this uh, mm-hmm. success of X-Men comes into play here. And he'll be the first to tell you. <laughs> yeah, Chris Claremont. Yeah. The uh, longest running contributor of the X-Men. He, he wrote for the comic books from 1975 to 1991. British born. Uh, definitely p- uh, part of the, you know, whole... Um, was he a part of, yeah, he's part of the kind of the British invasion a little bit, or like a precursor to the British invasion? Here, here's how it pans out. Uh, let me just double check, because like, I want to make sure I have the timing right. Uh, he's born from a, uh, born in England. Uh, his family is British. Yes. Uh, but he then moves, he, he yes. moves to America, but his family um, like gifts him uh, British comic subscriptions. Yes. So the same kind of um, more open, more daring, more... Uh, experimental uh, uh, pedigree of comics that inspired, you know, uh, Alan Moore and uh, everyone we talked about when we talked about British comic book artists. Uh, he had that seed within him. So, like, his comics, he knew that comics were capable of more, and 
that like influence kind of pushed him a little bit further. Uh, he he uh, at the time it, it's he's kind of has an interesting entry into the field. He actually thought that comics were dying uh, uh, when he was looking into careers that were had dwindling sales. He ended up going to Bard College for political theory, acting, and writing novels, and uh, ended up uh, just kind of happenstance being hired as a gopher and editorial. No, it wasn't. It Marvel. was not happenstance. Oh, okay. Um, same interview that I hurriedly listened to on the way over here. Um, he was an avowed leftist and thought he couldn't get an internship in D.C. Uh, so his political science like uh, degree, he needed a job for college credit, ah. and he couldn't do that. Uh, the theater scene in New York was having a slump. His family were close personal friends with Al Jaffe, who was uh, a prolific oh, cartoonist for yeah. Mad Magazine, mm-hmm, you know, the fold-in mm-hmm. oh, uh, yeah. guy. Um, oh, yeah. And so that's how he thought he could get an in with comics. That didn't pan out. Jaffe, like, referred him to another, like, publisher friend of his who worked with Marvel. Huh. And uh, I, the way he tells this story, as soon as he's told Stan Lee that uh, because this was for college credit, he couldn't be paid a salary, uh, Stan Lee hired him. Oh, wow. Of course. <laughs> and so he's part of this like mythic Marvel bullpen that we talked about in the in the uh, Stan Lee episode, where they're like creating comics and publishing, and all these like legendary figures like John Romita and uh, and I'm, I'm drawing a blank. But so he's there as a gopher, and like slowly but surely, he gets like roped into contributing ideas and eventually, is ingratiating eventually himself. given a stinky, nasty, mud covered bone called uh, Iron Fist. <laughs> Uh, it was the fledgling strip at the time. Uh, he's at this point joined by John Byrne, uh, and uh, the strip did pretty well under his uh, guidance, and it landed him a full-time position, uh, and also he got to work on the X-Men. So he's he says that, you know, I think what's interesting to me, especially as somebody who went to school um, and had to learn method acting, which was um, a nightmare. I don't know if you could imagine me attempting to be like some sort of a method actor, but I it was just, just can't awful. imagine you committing to any bit. Yeah, it was horrible. It was horrible. And, and one year, um, my uh, theater teacher, he was very like self-serious and very. Um, and he made us all, uh, every guy in the class had to do scenes from Streetcar Named Desire and therefore play uh, Stanley. So, that's from so the cliche. most, from the most effeminate, like dude in the class to like nerdy, ridiculous me, everybody had to sort of bust out and try to be this big, you know, it is so cliche and it was a nightmare and it was just like, I, you know, I got kicked out of acting school and everything. Wait, really? Stella! Yeah, I got kicked out of acting school. I never knew that. Yeah, it was BFA acting. I got kicked out. I did my first comedy show the night I was kicked out. Um, I did an improv show with John Moreno, who I would end up co-forming uh, Murder Fist with, and it all kind of happened right on top of each other like that. It was the worst day and the best day ever. It was kind of huh. nuts. Yeah, it's really interesting. But what was not interesting was having to go. Uh, I remember uh, my the funny line that I'll never forget because it was impossible for me to say without sounding like a fucking idiot. What's up with all these monkey doings? <laughs> I had to say, try to say that and not sound hilarious. <laughs> Anyways, what's up with all these monkey doings? Uh, why won't you love me, Stella? It's awful. It was the worst year of my life. Anyways, but back to method acting. The reason why we got there was because John, uh, 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 Claremont approached the uh, the role of writer for the X Men as a method actor. He was trying to develop the characters, examining motives, desires, individual personalities. I mean, I'm sure you probably heard of method acting before, but even though you, you probably only heard of method acting in the douchey sense where people like have to only, you know, if I'm playing a character named Patrick, you have to only refer to me as Patrick on set and stuff, which yes, that is that. But also a lot of method acting is just really trying to dig deep and consider the entire backstory of a character that you're you're playing, really try to visualize the space really try to you know um uh, object endowment was a big thing where you kind of pick objects in the space that you're performing in and really give them a whole history and everything and really just try to get as close as you can to like a ma- uh, becoming like this other uh, this other fake person you know for a brief time in the stage which everybody's heard about it and everything but either way he was approaching it, approaching it like that really trying to come up with like very specific backstories for every character and really try to make it very vivid for himself 
himself, what what these characters felt like, thought like. He said he, uh, uh, editor-in-chief Bob Harris said he lived it and breathed it. He would write whole paragraphs about what people were wearing. He really got into these people's thoughts, hopes, dreams. I mean, yes, it was very lofty stuff. <laughs> I love that you said so. He'll be the first to tell you, huh? So he's very like. Um, oh, he is. He is a bombastic guy. He uh, definitely. He. I mean, he will complain about what they're doing to like his creations. I mean, how could he not be? He co-created Rogue, Psylocke, Mystique, Jubilee, Warpath, Wolfsbane, Pyro, and Gambit, just to name a few, Jake. What comic book icons have you created this fucking past couple weeks? I mean, I'm working on it. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, you do have all puppet characters. I got to get on my fucking shit. It's, okay. Um, it's a guy. His name's Ballbuster, right? <laughs> right? He's got steel-toed boots. That doesn't really make... No, that's not a power, though. You know what I'm saying? No, those are just Timberlands. He's just an awesome dude I want to fucking rock and roll with and fucking have a sweet He could be with. like an anti... He could be like a bad guy he could who's like, like trying to guy. stop the mutant race by... Kicking the balls <laughs> of the X-Men. Yeah, that could be kind of fun. Oh, no more right. mutants. No more Wacko. mutants. I'll bust all the balls of all the boys in the world with my uh, wonderful wife, Uteron uh, uh, Hysterector. And Unus. <laughs> and Unus. And Unus, the untouchable. Hey, you can't touch me, you see. Ooh, you can't touch me. Put your pants. Uh, Unus, put your pants on. Uh, he populates his uh, his X Men with a lot of like Irish and Scottish characters. There's uh, like uh, Moira McTaggart and Banshee, and uh, it's, it's and McGinty's the talking bar. Yeah, um, I remember that one. But uh, <laughs> this like uh, once once Claremont gets going, it is just soap opera city. Just these larger than life emotions. These like intensely epic moments. He takes the X Men to space, which is like super super clutch. <laughs> um, Why is it super clutch? Because it lets them explore these like grander ah. uh, 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 forces and like kind of after that point, the X-Men like gets their own cosmic universe on top of everything. So it's uh, God, I don't even know. It's 17 years of just constant stories. I guess the the big parts of his run are. I mean, he also, I don't know, maybe co-wrote the best selling comic of book of all time. That's in the '90s. We're st- we haven't even gotten to like the '80s yet. That's the overview stuff. We should we talk. We should talk about John Byrne right now before we get into the '80s stuff. Uh, okay, right? uh, John Byrne, artist and writer. Um, uh, he's he, this is a quote uh, himself about his sort of uh, coming to comic books. My journey into comics began with Star George Reeves' Adventures of Superman series being shown on the BBC in England when I was about six years old. Not long after I started watching the series, I saw one of the hardcover black and white annuals that were being published over there at the time, and soon after found a copy of an Australian reprint called Super Comics that featured a story each of Superboy, Johnny Quick, and Batman. The Batman story hooked me for life, yo! A couple of years later, my, the yo was added by me. A couple of years later, my family emerged, uh, immigrated to Canada for the second time, no less, and I discovered the vast array of American comics available at the time, yo. Again, the yo was added by me. Mm-hmm. He went to school at Alberta College of Art and Design in Calgary. He freelanced for Charlton Comics and other publications, got a job with Marvel after Chris Claremont saw his work with Charlton and began, um, as he put it, he began agitating for me to draw something he had written. When artist Pat Broderick missed a deadline on the Iron Fist series in Marvel premiere, production manager John Verporten fired him and offered the book to me. I turned around the first script in time to meet the deadline and so started getting more work for Marvel until I was able to leave Charlton and focus entirely on the Marvel stuff. And that's just a fucking lesson all you people out there. I can't there. believe you skipped over uh, one of the most glaring facts on his Wikipedia page. What? His uh, first superhero that he created in art school. Oh, what? Gay guy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was... I, for, I fucking forgot to put that... To, yeah, that was... I was just like, I don't even know how to communicate this. His first superhero was, <laughs> was gay guy. But wasn't it a, sa- a satire? It was a satire of, that played uh, up superhero tropes and the uh, stereotypes of the uh, gay art school student. You know, un- actually, that is quite... Ha, 
that's gay guy in I don't, front of the I, rainbow. I, I, if you just write gay guy superhero, you're just going to get yeah, Captain just, America. Yeah, it's just going to be. Uh, look up John Byrne, maybe? Yeah, it would have to be B-Y-A-R-N-E and then gay yes. guy. Ooh, from the director of Black Swan. Is it Mother? Sorry, we're looking at um, uh, the trailer. I need to see that damn movie, Jake. I've been dying to watch that. I heard it's great. Uh, so, anywho, um, is that is, oh, is that actual stuff from it? Yep. Oh, amazing. Oh, no. So it's it, very it, it, fabulous. This is actually very relevant, though, because of how much the X-Men meant to LGBT rights, mm-hmm. everything like that. You know, we'll talk about it later, but the marriage that happens and all that good stuff. We'll get there. But um, anyways, uh, yeah, he did gay guy back in college for, for the college newspaper. Um, and uh, yeah, he, he uh, gets involved with Chris Claremont. And they start rocking it. Uh, the you know okay, and this is when we move into the 1980s, Jake. And the 80s give us really, I'd say, you know, honestly, I would actually maybe even dub them the big three storylines that come up again and again in the movies later on. All that stuff. Can you guess what they are, Jake? Give me give me guesses here. Um, I would uh, I would guess. Now, a lot of people separate the Phoenix Saga and the Dark Phoenix Saga. So, which which are you are you throwing them both together? Uh, I'll just throw them both together. Yeah. Okay. So the Phoenix thing. Um, <laughs> let's see. Um, oh, and we're sticking on. to the eighties. Yes. Um, well, may oh shit, maybe I don't know. Uh, <laughs> if we're okay, so in the eighties. Uh, he does uh, an amazing run of stories, uh, especially with the way that he kind of elevates Jean Grey to this like almost godlike, like tragic, epic character. Broken up into two parts: the Phoenix Saga and the Dark Phoenix Saga. Jean Grey is gains the power of a god, and eventually, spoiler alert, sacrifices herself to save everyone. Um, it, it, this is, pr- I mean, is this not the most well known? story arc in all of comic books um it is and it isn't it blew the door it depends on how old you are it blew the doors wide open uh during the 70s and 80s uh the x-men books from the bottom of the barrel became the top selling comic book in america um people were hungry for just like the twists and turns and all the drama that claremont was writing like the uh, half of the, I mean, the Phoenix Saga is basically about Jean Grey's sexual awakening a little bit. Um, and, uh, you know, there's high-flying stories in space, a million new characters in, invented. Like, there's just these, John Byrne is drawing his ass off with all these giant action sequences and uh, the Shi'ar galaxy and universes and galaxies being destroyed. Uh, apparently a segment of the saga was inspired by the Avengers. Um, and I'm talking about the British spy show, the Avengers, uh, episode called a touch of brimstone. I wasn't able to really even dig in and figure out exactly what, oh, uh, from that. that's, um, I know exactly what that is. Uh, there's like a episode of the Avengers, which is Emma Peel, uh, if, uh, who is, um, the actress who we now know as having played Elena Tyrrell, Tyrrell. Was like, oh, uh, yeah, yeah, she yeah. She was hot fucking stuff back in the day. Yeah. And she infiltrates like a high society, like sex club, because in English society, there are these like private dinner clubs or supper societies. Or it, it's weird. I'm not quite sure. Think like as old and as storied as like frat houses. Like they're very exclusive and the powerful meet, and it's like about. And, uh, you know, but like the debauchery of the elite class behind closed doors and Emma Peel wears a fucking sexy ass black bodice. All right. Quit getting heated up over here. OK, it's just Meg's- look it up. Look up. I'm sorry. Super producer Megan, please he's show dro- he's in. literally drooling. He's literally drooling. No, I'm not drooling. But every fucking comic book writer who was writing in the 1980s, definitely. He just drew nipples on his knees and he's rubbing on his knees all weird. I don't get it. Jake, they're just knees. What's her name? Uh, Emma Peel, uh, <laughs> Touch of Brimstone. Anyway, that inspired the Hellfire Club and that inspired oh. the whole uh, seduction of the Dark Phoenix right. from the Phoenix Saga. Can you talk to me about the Hellfire Club? Uh, it's oh, yeah. literally that's Jean Grey as Wowza, the Black Queen. Wow, 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 wow. Yeah. Wow, wow, wee, wah. I wasn't fucking kidding. 
<laughs> she is jamming with that snake, too. That's yeah. fun. Um, so Jean Grey was always the girl in com- in the original X-Men comics. Always, like, you know, t- uh, passing off advances from, like, the other team members. Like, weeping over her love with Scott. And Chris Claremont kind of just blew up her character by having her imbued with the Phoenix Force in this incredibly intense uh, sequence where if you've watched, like, they always, it's always she's, like, piloting a plane or holding a plane together and being imbued with, like, space energy. They cover it in the television show and in the movies. And uh, she's dying of radiation poisoning. John Byrne is drawing this, like, terrifying, harrowing, like, series of images of her wasting away as her skin falls, like, like gets clammy and her hair's falling out in clumps. And she accepts the Phoenix Force, which is this interdimensional like fire energy of consciousness into her body and it and the new power ends up like affecting her she's more confident she's like more daring in her personality but things get weird between her and scott and she runs off to find herself because she's been like a weird superhero teenager her entire life she gets seduced by mastermind and the hellfire club for the explicit purpose of like trying to harness her phoenix powers but that involves breaking her mind and she gets like so twisted and so fucked up and the hellfire club like enrages her and like fucks with the x-men to such a degree um basically there's a shot uh during this where uh storm is being tortured and Jean Grey just snaps and, like, just lets loose with her power. She just wrecks uh, Emma Frost, the White Queen. And that's, like, the first inkling that the Dark Phoenix is a thing. Um, and it turns out this power has a dark side. And now Jean Grey is, like, the enemy. Now she's, like, this this character that literally every single character from Professor X to Beast to Angel to uh, Cyclops has a crush on is now, like, this cosmic embodiment of evil and all the emotions that go into it professor x is in love with a space princess named lalandra of course and like lalandra is like we have to kill this bitch and like <laughs> professor x is like ah that's weird that part where he just goes ay, 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 there's ay, so ay. many parts where professor x goes ay, 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 ay. <laughs> it's like half his shtick because otherwise he can just be like and everyone's in a coma right <laughs> so this is like soap opera times the infinity gauntlet times like the end of the world it is huger than huge the emotions are great there's all this weird like psychic relationship stuff where like cyclops and and gene gray are like baby i want to open up a two-way telepathic link with you the ultimate intimacy like again burn drawing his ass off and this is like crack cocaine yeah People people are loving it, and, and this whole, and behind the scenes, it's so controversial what's going on. Uh, uh, the, 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 there's, uh, the main players are Claremont, Byrne, and Marvel editor-in-chief Jim Shooter. Jim Shooter's going back and forth with them about, you know, uh, whether or not they should kill off Gene. Claremont literally s- suggests it out of frustration after she's de- depowered by the Shi'ar and they don't know what to do with her. Uh, they, they, you know, they end up kind of um, going with the suicide storyline. And Jim Shooter declares as a definite rule that if Gene Grey... Uh, that Jean Grey cannot be revived unless it was done in such a way as to render her guiltless of Dark Phoenix's crimes. It was sort of like a riddle. It was like something that people were trying to solve um, for years to come. And it actually, uh, the idea that Jean Grey was still on the bottom of Jamaica Bay, um, that Phoenix was created as a duplicate of her, uh, all of that came from a fan named Jim Busiak, apparently. Huh. He later became a freelancer in comics, and he attended a Comic-Con in Ithaca, New York, staying at Marvel writer Roger Stern's house. And just in the evening, they were lamenting uh, the loss of Jean Grey and everything, and and uh, Jim Busiak just mentions to Roger Stern that, you know, his idea about what what could be ha- what what could happen with Jean Grey to bring her back and and still abide by Jim Shooter's guidelines. Well, uh, G- uh, the uh, what, what's his name? Roger Stern ends up uh, telling John Byrne about it, um, and uh, this ends up uh, uh, later coming to play. I guess it's stuck in John Byrne's head as a way to solve this. Jim Shooter years later greenlights X Factor to reunite the old X Men with uh, writer Bob Layton, 
uh, uh, taking on the project. And Byrne calls him up and tells him about the idea from this fan. <laughs> and then they team up uh, to write the arc that would bring her back and do this whole, this whole, solve this whole riddle. But I remember it being such a, as a kid growing up, learning about basic comic book stuff, this always seemed like a very complicated and um, classic kind of monolithic storyline in the history of X-Men, something you kind of needed to be aware of going in. It, the, it still reverberates to this day. It just, it is just the, the forming it's it's like the I don't, I'm trying. It's like Batman's parents getting shot. Like the X Men is fund are fundamentally changed by this experience, and the and because it's comics and these are these same characters. Like, how do you not go back and like think about this shit all the time? And it's such a shame. And we'll get more into the Can movie. Please take Emma Peel off the monitor. <laughs> it's just incredible. Stare, I'm just staring at her, man. She's like 90 years old now. Yeah, and she is immortal in these photos. <laughs> Um, I, I, I can't get enough of her. I got to see mother and I'm going to have to look up, uh, well, Emma Peel, uh, you know, maybe some clips of footage either way. Um, no matter what, we are still talking about the X-Men here and the next big story of the three that, uh, I was trying to get you to guess, but maybe I'm g- getting into the nineties here. Days of future past. Oh yeah. Yeah. Written, uh, by Chris Claremont and, uh, artist, the artist team of John Byrne and Terry Austin, they're trying to stop a dystopian future in which mutants are incarcerated in internment camps. They have to go back in time, preventing a fatal moment to trigger the anti-mutant hysteria. That's a pretty easy way to sum it up. Um, we'll talk more about the movie next week, but it was made into a film that was uh, I, I enjoyed quite a bit. And I definitely want to go back and read this. I, I'm putting on my Christmas wish list, actually, the Phoenix. This is my question real quick, Jake. Um, I was looking up on Amazon like the trades for these sagas. I, the Dark Phoenix saga, saga popped right up, but the Phoenix Saga n- was did not. Is it just the Dark Phoenix Saga that I want to go back and read, or do I want to try to find Phoenix Saga and Dark Phoenix Saga? And, like, I read mean, them Dark back Phoenix back? Saga will get the job done before we have to scramble to research our next week's topic. <laughs> <laughs> um, Days of Future Past, though, also uh, something that will be going on my wish list, the, the trade of it. Um, it was devised by John Byrne, who wanted to do a story featuring the Sentinels. Um, and years later, he apparently realized that he unconsciously lifted the storyline from Doctor Who's Day of the Daleks episode, um, which the plot of that is summarized thusly. Freedom fighters from the 22nd century attempt to thwart a new Dalek invasion. I guess that's some kind of evil alien. The Dalek. Exterminate. Exterminate. I'm I'm like, this. the Doctor Who episode is going to be rough for me because I'm just so unaffiliated with the, the legacy of Doctor Who. Um, and have I don't think watched a single episode of it, so I'm really going to have to cram for Megan, that one. you got this? You're going to have? Okay. <laughs> Megan, shake your head, yes. By, uh, uh, but anyways, the Dalek Invasion of Earth, so they had to go back in time, this is the Doctor Who episode, to the 1970s to assassinate Sir Reginald Stiles, a delegate of the Second World Peace Conference, whose actions their history blames for the subsequent Dalek conquest. So This is also the plot of Terminator 2. This is, this yes. is just a good plot. Yeah, it's a good, but did Terminator 2 had that come out? By the time of Days of Future Past? Uh, no, God, no. Um, <laughs> I didn't think so. So it's probably right? the other way. But uh, it involved like a lot of dystopian kind of imagery. It allowed uh, Claremont to do fun things with the characters thanks to, you know, the time skip. Uh, there's a fucking radical panel of Wolverine just getting his shit wrecked by a sentinel. <laughs> uh, that's pretty iconic. Uh, and it was a chance to show up uh, Kitty Pride, which was kind of yes. a new fresh-faced character that Claremont had introduced at the end of the Dark Phoenix saga um, as kind of the bright new hope to kind of uh, reintroduce X-Men as this, like, uh, hopeful, uh, 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 you know, teen book. Right. Uh, you know, uh, Kitty Pride was like the optimist with fresh eyes that like still had things to learn about being a mutant. And lastly, um, the uh, 
pretty what, what X2 is based off of the mm. film God Loves Man Kills which is the other book that is on my now Christmas a wish list a graphic novel yes written by Chris Claremont illustrated by Brent Anderson um, conceived of actually by editor-in-chief Jim Shooter the X-Men must team up with Magneto to save Professor Xavier from Reverend William Stryker um, and uh, uh, I don't want to get too much into it because we can't delve too deep into these different story arcs but definitely a big classic of the time so we have these- it addressed the, uh, the emergence of the uh, fundamental yes. Christian right in American politics. Very, very, and a great name. God loves man kills. Mm-hmm. Fucking awesome name for a um, for a comic book arc. And and so so we've got some really big storylines happening for the X Men in the eighties. Definitely also made some them weird very ass popular. Ones, some weird weird ass stories. We got Mojo World. We got uh, Longshot. We got Proteus. We got. All sorts of like crazy shit going on that like we should mention, but it's there's just too much to get How into. How in it. the hell? But Alpha I w- Flight, Excalibur, X Factor, all these spinoff books. I was are, about to say done. so many damn spinoffs. The New Mutants, which we briefly talked on the Deadpool episode. Wolverine gets this uh, uh, his own uh, solo title. It, it just the spinoffs come and come and come at this point. This yeah. is when we really get into that, and that is when we hit the 1990s and. Um, the, the X-Men break up into two different groups um, and two different main titles for the comic book. There's Cyclops' Blue Team, which is X-Men proper, and Storm's Gold Team, which is the Uncanny X-Men. This is when Rob Liefeld and Sabi- uh, Fabian Nicieza Nisi- uh, enter the scene and do X-Force, um, which are the characters from the New Mutants. And I'll just say listen to our Deadpool episode to get w- w- way more information on that whole thing. And Jim Lee is brought on. Yes, he and- enters the scene his designs like when we think of the x-men if you're listening yes. to this now i'm sorry there's probably not a lot of 50 year old men listening good riddance you old fucks um your pieces of shit ah my bones are old fuck you so, 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 so suck it <laughs> so, so, suck it uh when we think about the x-men we think of jim lee's designs that were like modern and like streamlined and pouches and Jim Lee, born in Seoul, South Korea, grew up in St. Louis. His favorite comic was the X-Men growing up, having uh, being related. See, what happened was he was born in Seoul, ends up moving to like kind of a preppy. Seoul? Seoul, my bad. Ugh. Whoops, I'm bad at geography. Anyways, uh, uh, so anyways, he ends up moving to um, kind of like a well-to-do neighborhood. Um, you know, his dad was a, a doctor, I believe. Um, and and so he's going to a private school. So he's just he's getting a lot of shit because not only is he having to learn English um, as a new language when he got to America, but also attending a private school. He's a clearly a nerdy guy, like reading comic books and stuff. So he really related to that outsider, the outsider themes of the X-Men. He ended up attending a medical school uh, as per his parents, and uh, there he took an art class, which reignited his love for the work. He ends up putting together a portfolio, and again, this is how you do it right here, Okay. Um, you put together a portfolio and go to a comic convention. He went to a New York comic convention where he met editor Archie Goodwin, um, who invited him to the Marvel offices. He got to work on Alpha Fight, which is like the Canadian X-Men, and then Punisher War Journal, which I loved when I was a kid, and we're definitely going to at some point do an episode on the Punisher. Um, he started to get fill-in work on the X-Men and eventually became an ongoing artist during which he co-created Gambit, with Chris Claremont, so that was a big one for him. That's a big, big one. And really, it all comes down to this, what I mentioned earlier. Oh, was earlier. Gambit his design originally? That explains so much. Right? So he, co- uh, or he, he uh, co-created X-Men number one, in 1991, which became the best-selling comic book of all time. Go look up those variant covers. You will immediately recognize that comic book. I'm pretty sure I had the issue. Everybody bought that fucking thing. Now, Chris Claremont had been writing the X-Men for quite some time, and he had not sold 8.1 million books. In fact, 8.1 million copies. By uh, this point, the X-Men was kind of struggling a little, And so this was the period of time when artists reigned supreme. Todd McFarlane. Liefeld. uh, Liefeld. Jim Lee. Mark Silvestri. All these people would, of course, go and form Image Comics. Because they knew where the bread was buttered. It's called Image. Yeah. I just thought of that. Um, That's crazy. 
In fact, uh, during an editorial dispute, when the uh, editors took Jim Lee's side over Chris Claremont's on a uh, plotting dispute, that's what caused Chris Claremont to throw a hissy fit and finally quit the book. Claremont ends up leaving after just three issues of X-Men Volume 2, ending his 16-year run. John Byrne takes over writing. But of course, Jim Lee moves on to co-form Image Comics, as we said. And um, if you hadn't guessed already, Wildcats is his big contribution for Image. A.K.A. A, the X-Men again. <laughs> yes, exactly. So there's even more X-Books at this time, all these different miniseries running through them, very confusing crossovers happening at a constant there's a, rate. There, the, there's a, at least one major crossover a year. Um, we're, in the, we're deep in the 90s, and at this point, uh, Scott Lobdell kind of takes over, and when you think of like a lot of the big 90s stuff, it's Scott Lobdell's work that you want to be thinking of. He mm. helped invent um, Generation X, which was like the new teen book. Yep. Uh, he- Generation X, the new school Jubilee, and other teens are schooled by Banshee and Emma Frost, who used to be a villain, and then they made her good. Uh, all that good stuff. Uh, they- sol- solo series abound, Deadpool, Cable, Bishop, X-Man, and Gambit all get their own um, solo runs. Uh, uh, very few of those survived. Huge, uh, huge crossovers and big plots like uh, the Age of Apocalypse is like the major one I remember from when I was a kid where just for four months they were just like, and there was a time travel whoopsie doodle and Apocalypse is the god of this universe. Everything's fucked up and different. Uh, Wolverine's got one arm now. Deal with that. <laughs> um, oh, we skipped over when they brought out when uh magneto ripped out uh wolverine's adamantium and <laughs> yeah. fatal attractions i think yes, that was that fatal att- yeah so we got bone claw wolverine remember yeah. bone claw Bo- totally remember bone claw wolverine dude. <laughs> what a shitty idea the whole <laughs> thing that makes wolverine cool is that he got knives for hands <laughs> nobody wants bones for hands. creepy gross bones i already got bones in my hands they're shitty <laughs> So um, all of this, it's really uh, quite a clusterfuck of of storylines and different things running along each other. I mean, you get the same kind of thing talking about Spider-Man, which I brought up before, and how they tried to do, like, the multiple Spider-Man mm. and all that. You just, it just got very convoluted and confusing. As we move into the 2000s, uh, Claremont ends up returning to um, the two primary titles um, with his revolution revamp. This is my real, where I get real foggy. Like, I, I did not keep up with the X-Men after the 90s really and uh, aside ah. from the films well that's where things get a little bit interesting graham morrison enters the films come out mm. and the films do really well it's actually kind of the spark that makes the entire superhero movie juggernaut that we're currently living in possible grant morrison comes in and he kind of uh you know, he gets rid of the colorful costumes. He uh, refocuses the uh, team's adventures to like the Xavier School and kind of interpersonal drama. Uh, the, you know, the costumes kind of shift from the spandex, you know, different colors to like a more uniform black uh, and yellow leather uh, look. Uh, Jean Grey and Emma Frost and all the and all these other characters are are brought in. Uh, the storylines get deeply personal. Uh, Cassandra Kane, I think, is the name. Of, no, wait, I think that's the name of the character. I'm I'm drawing a blank. Anyway, Professor X's weird fetal twin sister starts fucking everyone's shit. Entire countries get blown up. Uh, there's a Chinese guy with a star for a head named Zorn, and he has like a big mystery, and then they don't know what to do with him, and so it turns out he was Magneto. That one was fucked up. Um, <laughs> In 2004, Joss Whedon just yeah. kind of swoops the fuck in with Astonishing X-Men. And he'd already, yeah, he'd he'd already done Buffy, right? And yeah. and created, I think he got in comics by doing a Buffy comic book for Dark Horse Comics. Um, and uh, he wanted to stay away from the big crossovers specifically, uh, wanted to continue the new X-Men. Um, and uh, yeah, this is like in between Buffy and like Angel and Firefly when he did all this. Mm-hmm. He did a 24 issue run. And he did that from 04 to 04. Eight got a big criticism for taking way too long. He to, took uh, a long time, and uh, John Cassidy, his uh, artist, also is very methodical. And so, I think, like when read all together, it is a hundred percent worth it. Awesome. And that delay 
insulated him from all the bullshit that was happening in Marvel in the 2000s where there's like dark rain and and right. secret wars and secret invasion and this was like very bright and colorful or it was just consistent and ah. self-contained and yeah. had great character moments and was like a little bit more like Lucy not Lucy because it was a little bit more fun like like they made Wolverine like just this like less like pathos kind of guy and made him just a beer drinking Canadian murder machine. Uh-huh. They uh, got into Cyclops' psychology and kind of like evened out his whole like twisted uh, memories and personas. They had a really great space adventure, which harkened back to the Dark Phoenix saga um, because for some reason you put the X-Men in space and they're a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Like when almost when, it's when freed of the baggage of having to be the uh, like, grim representatives of the mutant race like their characters are just free to shine more i don't know like hmm. if, if anyone's you know, i'm i'm just rattling right off now in a red bull haze uh uh he does at the end of the run he hands the keys to that car over to warren ellis a writer i'm a big fan of who did transmetropolitan and red before that though uh, we kind of skip over grant morrison entering the scene yeah. On uh, the uh, with um, the revolution like revamp, he uh, first. Uh, uh, I'll just do a quick overview. As I know we're gonna g- do more on Grant Morrison in the future with Invisibles and stuff like that. Um, he first published uh, at age seventeen a script called Gideon Stargrave for a British alternative comic magazine called Near Myths in nineteen seventy eight. Ended up torn with his band in the eighties. He's like the coolest dude in comic books. He's in a band called the Mixers. And then he started getting work uh, with Marvel UK writing strips for Doctor Who magazine. Then he gets a serial run in 2000 AD, um, and this gets him notice uh, from DC Comics, who accepted his proposal for Animal Man, and that's how he ends up working with uh, Marvel. Um, And uh, yada, yada, yada. Either way, uh, he kind of jumps back and forth from Vertigo back to Marvel. Cassandra Nova was the name of Professor X's weird sister. I feel bad ah, for getting it wrong. There you go. And he goes to write on the new X-Men, which is kind of all the stuff you were describing before. Um, One of the biggest uh, things that caused a lot of controversy is uh, his storyline where 16 million mutants, including Magneto, got destroyed on Genosha by Cassandra Nova. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that was a big crazy one. That happens one. a bunch. There's like, I feel like there's been multiple times that there's been like, don't worry. We like, which is kind of the, um, which is like a big civil rights thing. The idea like you can't integrate into a society that hates you. You have to just forge your own way. And then, but like always, if there's ever a utopia or a, or a refuge or any place where the X-Men are like, here's where mutants can be free, it will get nuked off the face of the earth. <laughs> it happens so many times. Uh, and so uh, we get up to closer to our, t- our day. Uh, Marvel now has uh, is the relaunch in 2012. They canceled uh, X-Force, X-Factor, and X-Men Legacy. They relaunched Uncanny X-Men. They had new flash flagship uh, series like amazing x-men and all new x-men um wolverine is killed off in the death of wolverine well what i mean you know what's going on is fox owns the rights to the x-men movies ah. and for a while it was great because like oh these these successful movies are helping push our books but then when marvel starts their own studios it's like oh fuck we're just giving free publicity to our rival studios so huh. like Things get really deconstructed ah, really fast. Because there's another relaunch in 2015 called the all-new, all-different Marvel. So we, it's just yeah. a constant, seems like, shuffling and, and sort of... Um, I, I remember specifically there's, like, House of M that leads to, like, extinction where, like, the Scarlet Witch just literally just goes, there's no more mutants to just kind of, like, get rid of the universe. Marvel starts introducing the Inhumans and the Terrigen Mist as, like, a narrative alternative to the puberty kids with like powers they can't understand um the avengers versus x-men crossover literally makes cyclops colossus emma frost and magic and namor the bad guy like they make the x-men the bad guys Mm -hmm. um it's it gets like it's very it seems pretty obvious that the fix was in for the x-men once uh the marvel studios and the marvel comics heads were like yeah, no, we can't. We're not going to give this play, like this thing free. Like they're the enemies now, right? And the X Men fans, the actual people that go and buy the comics, that's still just like a hundred thousand people maximum. 
mm-hmm. whereas the movies are these worldwide phenomena are are insanely huge but at the at its core with all the crazy soap opera storylines and convoluted crossovers and spandex and everything um at its core i mean there's the, this is so such an important comic book for a lot of people when it comes to lgbt rights when it comes to um you know uh rights for minorities all the messages uh, inherent and all of this stuff you know it's also in- incredibly popular among uh female comic book fans mm. while other comics were like just kind of like dude power fantasies for the most part uh like the x-men was about relationships a lot more than it was about punching the right bad guy and uh-huh. that kind of drama and and character development was really like compelling because I mean, you know, it, it was I, it is a soap opera. It's been running for fifty years, and these people go through so much twists and turns. Yeah, and and uh, you know, and especially to be noted that Marvel does host the comic's first gay wedding between North Star and his partner Kyle in Astonishing X Men number fifty one. Of course, Claremont had this to say, and I think it's a good way to close things out um, when it comes to the topic of the X Men in comics. He said, "The X Men are hated, feared, and despised collectively by humanity for no other reason than that they are." mutants so what we have here intended or not is a book that is about racism bigotry and prejudice and i think that that's a pretty cool thing and, and no it's an about people thing. in skin tight costumes <laughs> shooting lasers and fucking. i was just thought they looked really rad and but that's i mean what isn't that what's it what's great you know is that as a kid with no discernible interest in you know whether or not you know uh human rights and and the intricacies of it but you're gonna pick that book up because fucking wolverine looks fucking rad you know and you're gonna read it and you might actually get something important out of it you're gonna be like why does he have bone claws (laughs) ball buster back again (laughs) busting the balls of all of his friends Why would you be friends with that guy? Either way, we'll cover the Wolverine comics in the Wolverine episode. You <laughs> yes. By the way, yeah, we're and not we'll even. We'll cover the X Factor episode, and we'll cover <laughs> all the shit. And that we'll we cover do. the movies and and video games and toys and all that good stuff next week. But I will uh, never cover Excalibur. Yeah, we're not. This working is my on that. statement. That's we're not doing that. But either way, thank you for joining us for X Men Part One. We hope you enjoyed it, and um, thank you so much for your support for listening. If you'd like to write a review on iTunes, it would help us big old bunches if you'd like to check out our patreon and become a supporter that's patreon.com forward slash whizbrew right whizbrew every week you'll get a bonus episode and at the higher tiers you get all sorts of extra bonuses and uh you can like tell us what to do there you go you can tell us pretty much what to do we'll pretty much do anything you want us to do uh follow me on twitch.com forward slash uh holdnators no twitch.tv forward slash holdnators so i'm losing the script right now jay you have to write down what i say for the rest of this fucking run of this goddamn uh, podcast show what about you do you still work at dorkly or they fire you yet not yet (laughs) i'm working on some very fun stuff for dorkly i'm very excited about it and uh follow me at best jake young on twitter all right thanks again y'all Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am on how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org slash lost. I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I'm excited to be teaming up with Lexus GX and SiriusXM on some very special 99PI episodes. We're heading to some of the cities in the U.S. that have special meaning for me and exploring the ways that these cities marry form and function. To learn more about the Lexus GX and SiriusXM and Lexus vehicles, visit Lexus.com slash GX and SiriusXM.com slash Lexus trial. The all-new Lexus GX. Live up to it. Check out the 99% Invisible feed now and listen to these special episodes.